Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised in eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made, made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Is that it? One more verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their hands. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these... There's no longer an offering of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the last few years um, pastoring this church, uh, we've had a lot of people walk through our doors to, to check out our worship, which I'm very thankful for. And, and as a pastor, I do try to meet up with people that have just started attending with newcomers and, and you know hear their thoughts about the church, about their experience of our worship. And as you might imagine, that leads to some interesting conversations from time to time. And one conversation I had a number of years ago was with a young man who had worshiped with us maybe three or four times and was not a believer in Jesus, but uh, had been invited by a friend. And and I asked him about his experience uh, of worship with us, kind of eager, you know, to dive into a conversation. And, And he said something that surprised me. It's hard to surprise me, but this surprised me. The first thing he said was something he had noticed about the content of the songs that we sing. Um, and in particular, he said to me this, you guys sing a lot about blood. And I think that's really weird. In particular, he said, you know, you sing about being washed in blood. And you're thankful for blood. And, and I've never heard anything like that in my life. And it's very disturbing, he said. I don't like the idea of being washed in blood. And I have to admit, <laughs> I'd never heard that one before. But, but as I reflected a little bit on what this guy said, it did strike me that that's pretty weird. Isn't that pretty weird? Um, we Christians talk a lot about blood. Um, Oh, precious is the flow of blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. And as we'll sing here in a little bit, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. That's weird. It's strange. If you have no background in the Christian faith, heck, even if you do have some background in the Christian faith, it might be strange. Why do we do this? Why all this talk? (laughs) Why all this singing? about the blood of Jesus? Fair question. Fair question. It can actually be a bit off-putting with no context. Blood, however, is talked about all the time in the Old and New Testaments. There's over 700 references to blood in the Bible. And in the New Testament, the phrase, the blood of Christ, is used three times more than the phrase, the death of Christ. It's very prominence. It's written about by Paul and by Peter, by James and by John. Every week when we come to the table, we remember what Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. But more than other any, any other book 
in the New Testament, blood is a theme in Hebrews. And, and it's highlighted in our passage this morning. So I want us this morning to focus on that idea, the theme of blood. You're like, oh my goodness, didn't know that was going to happen. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about blood today. Um, we're working our way through Hebrews. And today we reach the end of this long argument that began way back in chapter 7, verse 1, about the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the last priest any of us will ever need. And specifically, chapter 9, verse 1, through what Tisa just finished reading, chapter 10, verse 18, those verses are about the superior ministry of Jesus, our high priest. His ministry is superior, the author has been telling us, to the old covenant, the Old Testament, the old way of ministering, the old priesthood with all its rituals and sacrifices. And the reason this was relevant for the original readers of Hebrews is that they were being tempted to go back to the old ways because they were Jewish Christians. And Jesus, through the Hebrews, has been saying again and again, don't do it. I'm better. I'm superior. Last week, we focused on two big themes in this chapters 9 and 10 section. We saw that Jesus has a better ministry because he gives pure consciences to us who are guilty. And then secondly, we saw Jesus has a better ministry because he gives true access to those of us who are defiled. And today I want to focus on a third theme, which I've already introduced to you, the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and we can summarize it this way. Okay, here's the main point. Jesus has a better ministry because his blood really takes away sins. His blood really takes away sins. Two ideas as we think about that main point this morning. First, blood symbolizes in this text and in all the Bible the consequence of sin. And then secondly, blood symbolizes the cost of redemption. Okay, so that's where we're headed. First, blood symbolizes the consequence of sin. If you look through these verses, if you listen to the reading of them, you'll see that word blood again and again. Chapter 9, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, 21, 22, 25, chapter 10, verse 4. And then the word sacrifice, which assumes bloodshedding, is also used a lot. Verse 23, verse 26, chapter 10, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14. The idea dominates the context. The idea of blood sacrifice. Why? What does blood have to do with anything? Well, one thing it does is it symbolizes for us the consequence of sin. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, the sins committed under the first covenant. And then verse 18 of chapter 9. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And then verse 22, an important summarizing verse, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The concept behind all these verses, the underlying idea is that sin ruptures our relationship with God. Sin ruptures our connection to God. And it does that first and foremost. Before it does anything else, it disturbs our connection to our Father. Sin ruptures our connection to God because God, in his infinite holiness and goodness, is, as we saw last week, he's offended, and rightly so, by sin. Because sin, in its essence, is a power 
that exists to dethrone him. Sin causes then our separation from God, which ultimately leads to death, both spiritual death and physical death. That's illustrated for us powerfully in the earliest stories of the Bible. In those primordial days of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that God made a promise to our first parents, Adam and and Eve, that if they obey him and live in relationship with him, they will inherit eternal life, which was sacramentally symbolized in the tree of life. But if they disobey him, God says, you will surely die. Of course, as we know, our parents disobeyed their father, but they didn't immediately die. When they turned against God in rebellion, they were instead cast out of God's presence, exiled to the east of the Garden of Eden. But already there, even in Genesis 3, we see the good news of the gospel in embryonic form. God made a sacrifice to clothe them. And he kills an animal and uses the skin of the beast to put clothing on his beloved children. That illustrates this principle that Hebrews is assuming. That because sin deserves and brings death, God, from the very beginning of his relationships with his people, in what the Bible calls covenants, gives them object lessons. Remember last week we talked about the children's storybook that exists to be an object lesson for our children. That's, in a sense, what these sacrifices were. Object lessons given from God to us about what will be required for humans to be able to relate to God again and to know God again and to live in God again, which was the purpose of our creation. Animal sacrifices are made. That's why verse 3 of chapter 10 says, In these sacrifices... There's a reminder of something, right? A reminder of sin every year. The sacrifices exist to show us that a death, a death must occur. Blood must be shed to pay for sin's penalty. And so every sacrifice, every death of every lamb or goat or bull is a visible, sensual, gory, and gross bloody reminder, right, of the consequence of sin. They exist to stick in our faces what sin does. Uh, I've read that when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in the immediate aftermath of that for the next hours or so, as everyone was trying to figure out what had happened and what was going on, uh, Jackie Kennedy, his wife, who of course had been sitting with him in the car when he had been shot, she refused to allow anyone to clean JFK's blood off of her. Uh, In fact, she had this famous pink suit on and she wouldn't let anyone touch her because she said, I want them to see what they have done. I want them to see what they have done. That's what the sacrificial system existed for. That's why there was so much bloodshed in the Old Testament so that we can see what we have done in turning away from God. But, very importantly, in the idea of sacrifice, there's another concept, and the concept is substitution. Okay? That means this. You and I can offer something else to die in our place to pay, to atone for our sins. So in the Old Covenant, the animal suffered the fate the human being deserved, showing the seriousness of sin, right? 
that's what's happening in this covenant ratification in Exodus that the author of Hebrews refers to in chapter 9. Look there in verse 19. He writes, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, saying, This is the blood, there's the word again, of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The idea there is that blood exists to remind us that the animal sacrificed is taking our place and bearing our penalty. Maybe the most famous example of that is in the Old Testament story of Exodus. You kids probably know that story. Kids, tell me. What was it that the Hebrew people in Egypt had to place over the frame of their doors in order for the angel to pass them by? Kids, blood, the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed took their place. It took their penalty. So why all the blood? Why was, as verse 22 says, almost everything under the law purified with blood? It's all a big object lesson that we need. Why do we need it? Here's why. Listen, we don't think our sin is nearly as serious as God thinks our sin is. (laughs) We tend to undermine in our own hearts, in our own conversations, in our own relationships, how radical the effects of human rebellion against our creator are. A number of years ago, um, People Magazine ran a survey of their readers. It was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek, and and they called the survey uh, the Syndex, the Syndex. And, And this was a survey in which each sin was ranked and rated by a sin coefficient. So the worst sins are at the top, the not so bad sins are at the bottom. And as you might expect, Um, murder and rape and child abuse and spying against one's own country. Those were the top four worst sins, according to the Syndex, in ascending order. With smoking and swearing and illegal videotaping, this is in the 80s, um, far down the list. You kids are like, what is a videotape? Um, Parking in a handicapped spot was surprisingly high on the raking scale. Uh, Living together without being married, probably not surprisingly, got off lightly. Cutting in front of someone was deemed worse than divorce. (laughs) Predictably, no no corporate sin was mentioned at all, even though that topped the list of the Hebrews and the prophets. Um, Most significantly for our purposes, though, Overall, readers said that they, quote, commit on average 4.64 sins per month. (laughs) You who laugh at this illustrate my point. (laughs) We tend to undermine our, our native tendency to brush sin off as nothing but a few individual shortcomings. But the sacrifices God commanded in the Old Testament, the smell, imagine worshiping in the Old Testament, the smell of blood and death was everywhere. It was gross because it it was a constant reminder of what sin deserves. The blood of sacrifices was ongoing because, friends, the reality of human evil is ongoing. And so this text really prompts us to ask ourselves a question. Do you see your sin for what it is? Do you see your sin rightly? 
Do, do you have a sense of your sin as just a, a few specific actions that you should stop doing? If that's how you understand sin, you're not going nearly deep enough. The Book of Common Prayer has a saying in the regular confession in which the, the worshiper is to confess, there is no health in us. Flannery O'Connor has written a lot of great books. One of her one of my favorite books of hers is called Wise Blood. It's a novel. And in this book, there's a character named Hayes. Hayes Motes is his name. And like all of her literature, the, the book is set in um, the Old South. And Hayes is a, a broken man. But as he's aged, he's gained some wisdom. And, and at one point, without being able to give all the background, Hayes is apprehended by this crazy old blind man who's a religious zealot. And uh, the blind man captures Hayes and demands that Hayes repent of all of his sins. And he says, I ask you to renounce all of your sins by name. You must begin with fornication and blasphemy, he says. And Hayes Motes, apprehended to the back of this guy's car on the side of a highway, says, those ain't nothing but words. If I was in sin... I was in it before I ever committed any. If I was in sin, I was in it before I ever committed any. He understands the problem. More than something we commit, sin is something we are in. Fleming Rutledge writes this, To be in sin means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the reign of greed, cruelty, rapacity, and violence throughout the world. That's why there's so much blood in the Bible, because it's a constant reminder for us of what sin really brings, which is death. The blood of sacrifices reminds us that sin brings God's displeasure. It ruptures our innate friendship with him. It it wounds this entire world. The only answer for it is death. But secondly, in Hebrews and throughout the scripture, blood symbolizes the cost of redemption. Seeing, as we have in the prior few weeks, that the old sacrificial system points us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. You know, we should be asking ourselves this question. What kind of predicament have I gotten myself into that it requires the blood of God to get me out of it? What kind of a predicament have I gotten myself into that Jesus had to die To get me out of it. The magnitude of what God has done in Christ requires a corresponding magnitude of a problem. To put it simply, it really costs something to redeem us out of sin. It costs God something. And the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament, which Hebrews goes on at length to show us, was always intended, as we've been studying, to show us this. It was always intended to point to the real and final sacrifice of Jesus made on the cross. Jesus is the substance of which the Old Testament system was merely a shadow. That's what verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10 are saying. The Old Testament was a a type of Jesus, the sacrificial system. 
It was showing us our need for real forgiveness through the blood of someone, not something. Through the blood of someone more precious and more valuable than an animal. And I love my dog, but a human is more valuable. His blood is more precious. That's what the author is getting at there at the end of chapter 9. Look in verse 24. Christ has entered, he writes, not into holy places made with hands, which are just copies of the true things. But Jesus, the last priest we'll ever need, entered into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it like the old way to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the old way can never actually take sin away. Our problem of sin is so great that we need a better sacrifice. We need a more precious offering. We need, we need more valuable blood. In fact, we need someone like us. A man, not an animal. Someone with volition. Someone with rationality. Someone who can identify with us. That's what verses 5 through 10 mean. Jesus came to be the final sacrifice. The psalm quoted there in verse 5 and 6 is Psalm 40. And Jesus is saying, I am owning Psalm 40 in my life and in my ministry. Jesus says there, behold, I have come to do your will. And then the author of Hebrews translate that into this. He, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Again, verse 12, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Later on, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a lot there. Let me give you two reflections as we wrap up. Two reflections on the sacrifice of Jesus. First, the Holy Spirit clearly, through this part of the scriptures, wants us to place a premium on the value of the sacrifice of Jesus. Our plight was so great that it cost the blood of God's Son to remedy it. What have we learned about Jesus in Hebrews? Just survey the book with me. Jesus is, is the one who's the radiance of the glory of God, <laughs> the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the one, Hebrews 1.3, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one that has left nothing outside of his control and to whom all things that exist are subject. This is Jesus. Jesus, we've seen, is the greater Moses. He's the builder of God's house, not just a servant in God's house. Jesus is the greater Joshua who leads his people into the promised rest of God. This is Jesus, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, to whom even the great patriarch Abraham paid tribute. This is Jesus, the one who's made the old way obsolete and has mediated a new covenant between us and God. Jesus, image of the invisible God. Jesus, author of life. Jesus had to die. He had to be sacrificed. He had to shed his own blood to really and actually deal with sin. Only one like him 
could ever do this. Only someone as great as Jesus could perfect us. Only Jesus' life has so much value, infinite value, that it can bring the world out of death into life. Only a perfect man, entirely free of sin's grip, could stand in our place and absorb our punishment. Jesus paid the great cost of our redemption with his infinitely valuable life and blood. A second reflection. Jesus paid this cost not for his friends, but for his enemies. God, as Paul tells us in Romans 3, put Jesus forth as a sacrifice of atonement, not because he was moved by our deservedness of the sacrifice being offered. No, God did what he did in offering Jesus his precious son, out of the profoundly rich depths of his great and overflowing love and mercy to rebels. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Think about that. That makes no sense. What? We aren't supposed to sacrifice ourselves for the unrighteous. We might be ready to die for our families to die for our countrymen, to die for our tribe or our group. But talking about dying, if you're righteous, for the unrighteous, is like, it's like asking the Ukrainian president to die for these Russian soldiers who are mutilating and raping and murdering his own people. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see something revolutionary, something that undercuts all our conventional ways of thinking about what is noble about what is moral, about what is honorable. Christ has died for the ungodly. Christ has died for the unrighteous. Paul says in Romans 5 that you and I would not do that. It says for a righteous person, you might dare to die. But while we were still enemies of God, Jesus Christ loved us and died for us. We might die for the good guy, but Christ dies for the ungodly. Remember at the Last Supper? I mean, we quote it every week here. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, that's a very familiar saying. It's used often in military circles and not inappropriately. Uh, It's used to honor soldiers who have been killed in action. But it is, therefore, I think, easily misunderstood to mean that Christian sacrifice is only for those who are on our side. And war veterans, I've heard my grandfather speak with awe of the bonds that he had with his fellow soldiers in the South Pacific in World War II. But the entire presupposition of their bond is that it excludes the enemy. If we think of Jesus' sacrifice just like that, then we miss the whole point. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples... He's speaking to a group of people who are not going to be beside him on the battlefield. Quite the opposite. They've consistently misunderstood him. And they're just hours away from denying and deserting him. They're poor excuses for friends. The reality is this. The the great cost of redemption 
the death and the bloodshedding of the most incredible, loving, beautiful, kind human who has ever lived was paid by God out of love for his enemies, not out of love for his friends. Why? How can that possibly be explained? We can only believe it and wonder at how great is the love of God for this world. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, the world that hates him, the world that wants him dead, the world that worships itself and not its maker, the world that kills and plunders and destroys each other, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is you, and that is me. We were enemies of God, but he sent Jesus for us to shed his blood for us, to love us even in death by crucifixion. What more is there for God to say to you? He gave you his son. His blood has been spent The way is open right now for you to know his favor. Why would you not come? Whoever believes. A better ministry indeed. Let's pray.